Running Light Ministry Podcast is brought to you by listeners like you. You can support these podcasts by making a gift to the ministries at runninglight.org. Hey guys, want to welcome you to um, the Running Light Better Pleasure Podcast. My name's Bo. I'm Peter. And um, this is also known as the BP podcast <laughs> is that cool that's <laughs> clever yeah that's right. <laughs> isn't that weird how better pleasure and Bo and peter <laughs> it's like i don't know if we made that up or what god knew man <laughs> i know it's awesome i know it's really good having you guys um today we're going to talk a little bit about freedom sexual freedom and what that means biblically um and we also want to take any questions that you guys have we have some questions here that um we will take and um, there's some good ones, man. There's some interesting ones for sure. Nice. Yeah. So anything in the news, too? Is there anything that was in the news recently or anything that kind of hit you at all? I don't know if there's anything about sexual things that kind of hit you. I don't watch any news, so I don't even know. Yeah, me neither. <laughs> I know. It's so tough, you yeah. know? <laughs> it's like uh, half the stuff I watch is um, it's pretty, um, I don't know, pretty boring. Yeah. You know, it's all kind of more the same. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like every now and then I'll I'll, watch, I'll see something like just in a flash and I'll go, man, we should talk about that. And then I forget because I'm like, oh, you know, <laughs> got to write it down. You got to get a tape recorder, man. <laughs> Carry it with you. Record it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, we're going to talk a little bit about freedom, what that means. Uh, freedom, kind of sexual freedom. Um, Peter, how would you answer that or how would you go about something like that? Yeah, so uh, I, I think the passage that most Christians are thinking about, because um, it's interesting, you, you know, just talking about the idea of sexual freedom, you know, what, what we, what most people mean is like freedom from sexual immorality or sexual lust. And uh, it's very interesting to me that, and me and Bo talk about this often, about how the sexual sin tends to be singled out when it comes to this idea of freedom. And I'll explain that in a second. But uh, this idea of freedom usually comes from John 8. Uh, this is like the famous passage that deals with it. It starts in verse 31. and says, Then Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They answered him, We are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. So a lot of people, they, they ignore kind of the context, and they just take that last verse, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. And they take that to mean Jesus is saying that if we come to him and he sets us free, we are completely free from our sin issues, meaning that we no longer lust, we no longer commit sexual sin, we are free indeed. And that's how they interpret that section. And there's multiple problems with that interpretation, but the big one I already mentioned is that it, it takes a singling out of this particular sin in order to take that stance. What I mean is that no one would apply this. Well, there, there are some people, I should take that back. There are some Christians today who are what, what they call holiness doctrine, where they actually do believe that you could become 100% sanctified this side of heaven. You can become perfect this side of heaven. Uh, that's a minority view. The majority of Christians do not believe that way. And, but there is, that's, a, that's becoming, I think, a real popular view. 
it, it's kind of a faith view, uh, faith movement view, right? Right, right. So the, the prosperity gospel believes that a little bit as well. Um, so again, it's this idea that you will become perfect this side of heaven. The obvious issues with this, uh, it, it doesn't take much looking at the scripture to disprove this. Um, basically, what they're doing is they're pulling from passages of Jesus and the apostles where they say, like, flee youthful lust, where Jesus says, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the Pharisees, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. First Corinthians 9, uh, I mean, 6 verse 9, where he says, do not be deceived, uh, for neither idolaters, nor homosexuals, nor adulterers, nor fornicators, nor covetous will enter the kingdom of heaven. They take passages like that and they say, see, if you have any amount of sin, you're not in heaven. So therefore, that means that we can become sinless this side of heaven and they'll also say things like does jesus give us commands that we can't uh fulfill so if jesus says thou shalt not covet why would he tell us to do that if we couldn't do it if there wasn't some sort of an empowering of the holy spirit that enabled us to do that um so they take these passages like i said mainly out of context and the easiest way to dispute them is to look at all the sinful people who made it to heaven Right, So the easiest way to do this is to go through the Old Testament and be like, okay, was this true for people in the Old Testament, in the Old Covenant? So you go down the list. Abraham, who is the father of the faith, was he sinless by the time he ended his life? Um, no. Uh, we know that he had concubines, which means that Abraham did partake in a practice of fornication because that's what, that's what concubines were. They were women that you weren't married to that you had sex with on top of your wife. So you had relations with your wife, but then you also had relations with these other women. Um, beyond that, you do see Abraham engage in some other sins. Uh, for instance, doubting the promises of God, having sex with his maid, things like that. Uh, how about Noah, the guy who was righteous, right? He was the only righteous dude on earth. He was the only one worth saving, apparently, him and his family. Well, at the end of his life, he was getting drunk and it's getting so drunk, in fact, that he was blackout drunk, where he was taking off his clothes, passing out, that kind of thing. Uh, would we call that man sinless? Uh, you got other guys like David. Was David sinless? Uh, once again, he had multiple wives. He continued to have multiple wives even till his death. One of his last farewells to his son, uh, Solomon, was very vengeance heavy, right? It was getting vengeance on the people that he himself hadn't killed yet. Uh, so you see he still had major anger issues. Well, then let's go into the New Testament. Well, maybe that was just true of the Old Covenant saints, and now that we have the Holy Spirit, we can attain to righteousness. Well, you got guys like Peter, who even after the resurrection in Galatians chapter 2, was called out by the Apostle Paul for uh, basically being the forerunner for a heresy that almost dismantled the gospel in its entirety. Uh, that's not minor sin issues that Peter was dealing with. That's a pretty major sin issue. Uh, you also have the Apostle Paul, who by his own admission in 1 Timothy 1 was the chief of sinners, Timothy 1, verse 15. In Philippians 3, verse 12, he says, not that I have attained, nor am I perfected, right? So he himself has that view that I am not perfect. I have still have sin in me. Uh, he makes present uh, confessions of sin in Romans chapter 7 to the sin of covetousness. Uh, so when you look in the New Testament, you don't see anyone who's sinless. So you would have to look at the apostles and the saints of the Old Testament and say, yes, but I am greater than them. I have somehow achieved some sort of righteousness that they didn't. Uh, I, I would say that's that's fairly arrogant and mm. not very honest. Yeah, it. Um, sorry, I hit the little camera. <laughs> 
but it seems like in, in you know there's there's such a such a, a a cool thing about the holiness movement and and that there's like this I love the idea of like hey our faith you know the faith that we can have in Christ heals us and you know we hear a lot of quoting from Isaiah 53 which is a great passage uh, concerning Jesus um and that's what we believe even though the Jews would definitely differ with us on on that passage but in Isaiah 53 there's a there's a, a verse that says by his stripes by his wounds we are healed hmm. and so some people see that as kind of like when Jesus died that's when all the uh, all the ability to mend what was lost in the garden is now available through the death and and the, and in touch and the Holy Spirit, the power of the Holy Spirit through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, is now with us now, hmm. and and I think that's kind of there's something happening there theologically, right? Where people say when they say, "Hey, you know, by His stripes we are healed," like everything that w- we and they say is past tense. That's by his right. We're, we're healed, not. By his stripes, we will be healed. It's right. Stri- it's right. We are healed. Right. So so Jesus is promising us, you know, through the work of Messiah, through the sacrificial uh, um, sin or uh, sacrifice that he made on our behalf of for sin, everything's there. Hmm. So we just need to now appropriate that and walk in it. And then we will not have disease or we won't have we won't f- um you know I, I, i'm, I'm kind of i don't want to say fall the temptation but if right. we do fall the temptation we'll we'll get right back up pop right back up yeah be done mm-hmm. with it yeah so again this is kind of an interesting one because on one hand i have to agree with them and then the other hand i have to disagree with them mm-hmm. And what I mean is that, like, when Jesus came down, he did appropriate things that were true in Eden. And that's why Matthew does quote Isaiah 53 when Jesus was healing people. Um, and he quotes, he bore, he himself bore our infirmities. This idea of Jesus healing by bearing our infirmities and, and healing us. Now, what that's showing is you, you could say it's, it's like this. The resurrection that the Christian experiences Right. We will be raised there. There is a promise that we will be raised and we will be with Christ one day on a new heavens and a new earth. That resurrection begins the second you give your life to Jesus Christ. However, the resurrection will not be done until your body is literally raised again. Right. So it's kind of like this cool thing where Martin Luther, I think, really put it in a, in a great way. Um, he said that if you go to a doctor and let's say you've been poisoned with something, let's say, you know, we live in Tucson. I think a lot of people can relate to this. Let's say you've been bitten by a rattlesnake, right? What the doctor will do is he'll give you an antivenom. Now, at what point is that person healed or cured? Well, it's at the exact moment that he takes the antivenom. However, the effects of the poison take time to work their way out of your system. Right. It takes time. It's not like the second you take it, you're done. You're like you don't feel the poison anymore. It's not it's not affecting you. Um, but at the same token, the doctor wouldn't say to you, well, you're not healed yet. You're not cured yet. Of course, you would say you're healed. Of course, you would say you're cured because if you're not cured and you're not healed. Then there needs to be more things done until you can be cured in the same way. 
there needs not be any new things done to the believer in order to be resurrected. Meaning that it's not that we put our faith in Jesus Christ and then we must do other things to appropriate the resurrection. It's the second you put your faith in Christ, you're healed. You are raised. And that's how Paul words it in Romans 8. You are, he, who, he sanctified those, he glorified, right? It's all in the past tense, right? He has, he has done these things already. However, what Martin Luther said is that you have to understand that here on this earth, you have both. You have the illness and the cure working inside of you at the same time, right? And that's why you get interesting passages in the Bible like Galatians 5.17. The flesh lusts against the spirit and the spirit against the flesh. These two are contrary to one another, so you do not do what you wish, right? You're cured, but you're sick at the same time. And that's how Martin Luther put it, and I like that. And in the same way in the physical, it's like, did Jesus heal people? Yes, he did heal people to show that one day we will be raised. That's what our resurrection bodies are going to be like. No more illness, no more sickness, no more death. He did that. Did he raise people from the dead? Absolutely did. But guess what? Every person he healed and every person he raised died at some point, right? So the, the, the failure of their flesh still took, took them. And you have, again, you have to explain why is it that the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, prays three times for God to remove an infirmity from him, and God says no. Did Paul lack the requisite faith to have this thing removed? Well, if that was true, then Jesus' response to him makes no sense. Jesus says, my grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in your weakness. Um, why is it that Timothy is still has stomach infirmities? And in 1 Timothy chapter 4, Paul does not pray for Timothy's healing. He instead recommends a cure. He recommends uh, a medicine to use wine mixed with water in order to help with his stomach infirmities. So why is it that these great men of faith in the Bible seem to have physical infirmities if Jesus's healing was to be perfected the second we put our faith in him? Again, it just, it doesn't line up with scripture. It's not something that could hold weight when you look at it in its entirety. So we as Christians do believe, I do believe that God has the power and authority to heal things in my body. And when he does that, it's to show, it's to give me a kind of demonstration of what the resurrection is going to be like. However, I'm not going to have the totality of it until I see him face to face. And that's why in Philippians 1 verse 6, he says, He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ Jesus. Right? He doesn't say he who began a good work in you will complete it now. Um, right, <laughs> that would be cool, but that's not what he says. He says he will be faithful to complete it in the day of Christ Jesus. So there's there's a future tense there that it's going. It's, it hasn't happened yet, but it will happen once we see him face to face. How does interpreting our freedom in Christ, our our being free, hmm. um, um, kind of work itself out in dealing with sexual issues? Right, right. So. Like I said earlier in, in the podcast, there, there's this interesting thing where, where even Christians who do not subscribe to the holiest doctrine, um, even the Christians who up until this point have been listening to this and they've been like, yeah, amen, absolutely. We, are, we will be perfected one day. We are not there yet. Yes, all illnesses and sicknesses and death, even death itself, will be done away with in heaven, but it hasn't happened yet. They're saying yes and amen to all these things. But the sexual sin tends to be in its own category where they say, no, 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 freedom from sexual sin means you do not struggle with it anymore. You never view pornography again. 
you never have lustful thoughts again. And it was kind of interesting. I was reading over uh, a holiness perspective of this, and he talks about how he doesn't understand how uh, the devil and the Holy Spirit can indwell him, but he believes it does. And and that just as he doesn't understand how Satan can be before God in heaven, hmm. and and he, he kind of related those two things, um, but his idea was that was that um, w- or when he gave an example of like himself, and you know he said you know I can't believe there's evil that comes out of my mouth, so he kind of went into the James chapter i think it's chapter two or three Three, chapter three where there's evil that comes out of his mouth um and then and then you know then he'll kind of get hold of himself and kind of rebuke um he sees he sees every sin as a spirit um so the spirit of um anger or the spirit of whatever it was uh emotion that came out of him and then and then he kind of rebukes it by faith in christ and then trust you know the work of christ and then moves forward but what i what i find what i found i mean there's a lot there obviously but what i found kind of interesting was his example was just kind of that normal example uh and and it kind of goes to your point is that a lot of people don't use the sexual thing Mm -hmm. it's not like he said hey my example is is i like you know i'm I think of other things sexually, or or um, view porn the or other I, week, I, or, yeah, yeah view porn, or, or or something like that. His example was, you know, get I angry. S- I get angry. Right, right, and and you know, me and Bo have talked about this before, but there are certain sins that pastors seem okay with confessing that they still have um, sins like pride, sins like anger. Um, but even those sins, they, they don't really get into depth. Like, I, I don't think I've ever heard a pastor. Like, I would, I would actually be totally okay if a pastor says, hey, I have an anger issue. But then he went on and he said, yeah, like the other week, my son did something and I disciplined him out of anger. I overdid it, you know. I, like, I, I hit him too hard or, man, like, I, ye- I screamed at my wife. I told her to get out, you know, like I, you know, like something like that. I'd be like, whoa, like that's a, that's a real confession. Mm-hmm. But usually what you hear is something like, you know, like I, you know, I accidentally said this or I stubbed my toe and I said, oh, you know, bleep, you know, or like, you know, I, I was driving down the road and someone cut me off and I was like, ah, you know, and I got a little bit upset, you know, something like yeah. that. Mm-hmm. It, it's not like a real, like genuine. So like, you know, in my anger issues, you know, I, I, those I would wish that that's the totality of my anger problem, that that's, that's the, the worst that my anger can do, but that's not true. Right. My, I, my anger has really real and terrible effects on my wife and my family. Um, and yeah, I'm, I'm working on it. Yes. I'm, I'm seeking help in these areas, but it's certainly not at just the level where it only I'm only expressing it either in my mind or just like in the car at some point. <laughs> you know, that that would be amazing. I would love if I was at that level of sanctification, but I'm certainly not there. Uh but yeah, it, it's it's weird because you you won't hear pastors say the other week I was, you know, scrolling on YouTube and I I saw a video or something like that. And I was like, man, like that girl's really hot, you know? And I started to lust after it and I clicked on it and, you know, I watched it a little like, or, you know, like, Hey, I was on Facebook and I saw some girl like, you know, wearing, you know, not much clothing. And I, you know, I, I clicked on her page or man, you know, something like that, like that would be pretty radical, but it, it, in, in it, it 
insinuates to Christians that you can be totally free from sexual issues. Like it, it's possible because obviously that pastor has done it. You know, he's, he's done with it. And all sexual sin that I've ever heard from a pastor, minus, you know, present company excluded, uh, has always been past tense of like, oh, I used to have sex with like all these girls before I came to Christ. Or I used to view pornography or I use, you know, like that's that's what I've heard. I, I haven't heard present day kind of confessions. Yeah. Do you, you know, working with people, though, you know, the way we work with people, the way we believe about these things is going to affect the mm-hmm. way we work with people and I've always kind of tried to think about it like do you go up to someone who's struggling or say they've been giving into pornography for a length of time uh, do you go into up to them and then help them understand that they have a a spirit of lust in them and that and that are they not saved then um, or are they you know because they haven't experienced freedom hmm. um, in Christ and you know those are the those are the theological conflicts that I think within Christendom, um, it, it it becomes confusing and it weighs people down who who attend a church uh, right. kind of sexual recovery type of thing. Right. So uh, you know these are the the problems, the issues that I have with that kind of thinking. That, that line of reasoning. The first one's a biblical one. Um, I can't find any section of scripture in which a apostle or prophet or king or anyone who's written in the Bible describes the struggle that they're having as being between their desires for righteousness and a demonic presence. Um, I just, it's not in there, right? There's no section where David, in Psalm 51, after he commits his sin with Bathsheba, there's no part of him that says, for I want to do what is right, but I have some demon that in, in impacted me or influenced me to have sex with this woman. Instead, you see him writing things like, oh, God created me a clean heart, which is a, a reference to his desires, meaning that his passions are the ones that went to do that. Um, or he says things like, behold, an iniquity I was brought forth, meaning that it's my iniquity. It's my inherent bentness towards sin that pulled me that way. Or restore to me the joy of my salvation, meaning it's my lack of joy and desire for Christ that motivated me to go after this woman and sin in this way. Uh, Or in Romans 7, Paul, when he's describing his conflict, he's not saying, for I want to do what is right, but Satan in me caused me to do what is wrong. He doesn't say that. He says, for I want to do what is right, but sin in me, right? There's something in him that's making him do it. It's it's him that he's fighting. Or Galatians 5.17, where he says, the flesh lust against the spirit, not some demon lust against the spirit. It's it's his flesh. It's him that's doing that, uh, doing this act. So I don't see anything in the scripture that would insinuate that someone is battling some sort of demonic presence in them. Uh, so for that reason, I would reject it. The other reasons are more for the betterment of the person. Uh, so the, it's, it's going to the idea of how does this doctrine impact people? Uh, well, the first thing that I would say that I've seen uh, of how it impacts people is it number one it stops them from ever improving and the reason why they're not improving is because instead of taking ownership instead of doing what James says like in James 1 where he says for do not say that God tempted you for desire that is in you leads to sin and sin to death right so he's saying that it's it's you your desires your you're the issue you need to change 
if I don't believe that I'm the issue, then all I'm going to do is try to cast out the demon that's the issue. And therefore, I'm not going to do this amazing thing in Christianity that we call repent. I'm not going to seek any genuine change in my life because I don't think that I need to change. I think that the only change that needs to happen is this demonic presence needs to be cast out of me. Um, so the person that is doing this, they're going to be on a cycle of continuously casting out this demonic presence, but they're not going to change. So to put it another way, if what Paul and David are saying is true, that the issue is you and not some sort of a presence or entity that's in you, then you will never be able to be better until you deal with you, right? Uh, the other thing that it does is it takes away personal accountability. So if I were to go and cheat on my wife, instead of saying, honey, I'm sorry, right? I sinned. I did something wrong. I would have to say, I allowed Satan to take control of my body or something like that, uh, it, it, which is not really an admission of guilt. It's more of like uh, Satan did it. The devil made me do it, but I I'm sorry that I allowed him to make me do it. Uh, right? That's not really an admission of guilt. That's not really a confession of humility. Where do you see Satan's part in all, in, in all that? Right. So what we see in the Bible uh, is we see that the demons and Satan, what they have the ability to do is they have the ability to whisper, in essence. They have the ability to influence. And we get this from Genesis 3, the first time we see Satan do things. Satan doesn't force Eve to do anything. He influences her. He encourages her to do something. Right. To put it another way, Satan can fan the flame, but he can't create the flame. Right. Mm -hmm. Satan can encourage someone to do something, but he can't force or make someone do something. Uh, now, the only thing that would be the only way that I would say is contrary to that would be demonic possession, uh, which does exist. You see this in the Bible that people some people really are possessed by some sort of demonic entity. Uh, this, again, you never see this happen to a saint. I mean, you never see this happen to an Old Testament believer in Yahweh, and you never see this happen to a New Testament believer in Christ. Uh, th th never happens. But you do see people who do not believe in the one true God, uh, who do not have a relationship with him, be influenced or possessed by demonic presence. Yeah, like some people would look at Acts chapter, I think it's five maybe with Ananias and Sapphira, mm -hmm. And they might say, it says, why has Satan filled your heart? Hmm. Um, and they might look at that and say, hey, that sounds like demon possession to me. Right. Like, so were they Christians and demon possessed or were they not Christians and demon possessed? <laughs> or were they Christians and not demon possessed? And, <laughs> oh, you know, that kind of thing. So it's really interesting because in every passage, so there's passages like even in the Old Testament where it says that Satan filled David to uh, make a census mm -hmm. or things like that. Um, these sections exist and they happen. But it's interesting that they always have, it's, it's almost like the people who are writing them talk out of both sides of their mouth. For instance, w let me use Acts 5 as an example. This is Acts chapter 5, verse 3. But Peter said to Ananias, Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back a part of the price of land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Why have you conceived this in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. So it kind of seems like Peter's contradicting himself. In the first part, he said Satan filled his heart. But in the second part, he said he conceived it in his heart, right? 
So it was an act. It was a willful uh, act of Ananias to conceive something in his heart and to act on it, right? So it's like, well, which one is it? Well, it's both. Satan was there and he was present and he was influencing Ananias, but Ananias's desire was also already there and his desire was just inflamed by Satan to do it. Very much kind of, you think, in the same kind of vein as the Pharisees where Jesus says to them, you are of your father, the devil. Right. Like, you know, not that they were demon-possessed, but that they are influenced by the devil. They're influenced by him and they're imitators of the rebellion of Satan to reject the one true God. So these are really interesting passages. But like I said, if if we don't understand this idea of possession and things like that, it could lead us down some very interesting paths. So it's like of recovery. So it's like, what's the solution for someone who is demon possessed? So when Jesus or one of the apostles encountered someone who's demon possessed, they don't look at them and say, hey, you know, Put on the new man, right? You know, like work hard, you know, like flee youthful lust, you know, renew your mind. You know, like these these are passages that Paul said to believers, right? Romans 12, renew the spirit of your mind. Ephesians 4, put on the new man, cast off the old man. Uh, uh, I, I can't remember, First Timothy 4, I believe, where he says uh, flee youthful lust, right? These are things that he said to believers. When they encountered demon-possessed people, how did they approach it? They immediately cast out the demon, right? Mm, yeah. That That's how they approached the situation, the circumstance. So you see them approach both, uh, both situations very differently, very, very differently. And so as a Christian, it's like if someone is demon-possessed, like if I encounter someone who's demon-possessed, I never, I personally haven't. I've never encountered someone who's demon-possessed. Uh, but if I encountered someone who's demon-possessed, my response to that person would not be like, try harder. Um, hey, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, uh, which is in... Philippians 2 verse 12, right? That, that would not be my advice to him. I would pray over him for that demonic presence to be cast out of that person's life. However, Paul, again, and this is an insinuation, it's really obvious. If Paul believed that believers could be demon possessed, why doesn't he speak more about it in his letters, right? When people are committing sins, let's say in Corinthians, people were committing pretty hardcore sins in Corinth. They were having sex with prostitutes, they were some of them were struggling with gender identity, right? Uh, taking on opposite genders to the one that they were born into. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a guy having sex with his own mom, right? Pretty severe. I mean, his stepmother, but pretty severe sins were occurring in the Book of Corinth. Paul never prescribes exorcism in Corinthians. Never does it. Um, he always encourages them to change through, uh, like I said, through pursuing the Holy Spirit. And through certain processes that we talk about as Christians, confession, accountability, um, through uh, ownership, through pursuing God, through um, you know, fighting sin actively. Right? In 2 Corinthians 10, for though we walk according to flesh, we do not wage war according to flesh. For the weapons that we have are mighty in God for casting down strongholds and every argument that raises itself up against God. Right? These are the, the kind of things that Paul encourages. He never encourages exorcism, which seems to insinuate that Paul doesn't believe that demons are the responsible for the actions of these Christians, even though their actions are horrendous, right? Uh, they're, they're very, you can't look at the stuff happening in Corinth and be like, ah, it's not a big deal, you know? Uh, those, those are pretty hardcore stuff happening in Corinth, but he never attributes these things to demons, and he never prescribes demonic exorcism for these Christians. Hmm. You know, I was thinking of when you were talking about Corinth, uh, I was thinking about that Corinthian passage where he says, um, uh, he's talking about, 
you know, worshiping at Baal and worshiping at God, and you can't do both. Hmm. And that passage gets brought up a lot in in kind of these kind of discussions on recovery and helping people in the church. And sometimes you'll hear like the leader say something like, well, man, dude, you know, you can't do both. You're bowing down to, you know, the demon, you know, when you're watching that lustful thing and you can't serve God either. Hmm. And and so it it creates some kind of thing in the person's mind you know, where a lot of conflict, it seems like that it's hard for people to kind of sift through that kind of language mm. um, and in, in a positive way and, and move in a healthy future. Right. And uh, to those passages, once again, I have to agree. What, what does it mean to serve? Like these words, serve, worship, they're the same Greek word. Uh, it's either proskuneo or latreo. You, uh, you don't need to know that. But essentially, <laughs> serve and worship are the same word in the Greek and the Hebrew. And what it means to worship or to serve in this divine sense is to give ultimate worth to something. In fact, we get our word worship from the old English word worthship, to give ultimate significance or meaning or worth or sustenance to something. And what Paul's saying in a divine sense, yeah, you can't give ultimate worship to Baal and to God, right? It'd be kind of like this. Can I be 100% dedicated to my wife and marriage and 100% dedicated to another woman? No, it's either one or the other. Either I'm 100% dedicated to my wife or I'm 100% dedicated to this other person. It doesn't work both ways. I can't have 100% dedication to both. Unless you redefine the word dedication. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> unless, I re- yeah, unless I reword it. So what Paul's getting at is he's not saying that it's impossible. Well, I mean, in some sense, it is impossible. I can't give 100% of myself to God if I'm giving any of myself to something else, right? In that sense, it's true. But how many of us are actually giving 100% worship to God? None, right? If there was someone, there was only one person who gave 100% worship to God, and that was Jesus. But if there was a human being who gave 100% worship to God, that person would be totally 100% righteous and sanctified in every way. That, but none of us have gotten there. There's always a part of us that's divided, right? There's a part of us that, that wants to honor God, but also doesn't. And that's what Paul, again, that's what he gets at in Romans 7. I yeah, want to do and it. That's, that's kind of the, that, that's the sticking point in the theology, is that, and, and, is that if you don't subscribe to that, what you just said, then and you subscribe to a a a perfect holiness that you can attain to the perfect holiness then the way that you go about recovery is going to be a lot different that's right and um and the way someone receives that too like someone might for instance someone might on the on the holiness someone might say well hey i can't i should be able to achieve total holiness like jesus jesus gave us his holy spirit the same holy holy spirit that raised jesus from the dead is now in me so i should i should be living like jesus so i can be like jesus and I can be perfect like Jesus. Well, maybe not totally perfect like Jesus, but really cl- really getting there yeah. kind of thing. Like 90%. Yeah, <laughs> maybe, I, who knows what the percentages are, right? Yeah. But man, I'm, I'm, I'm moving in that direction. So, so okay, then um, I, 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 I'm going to pray, and I start praying, hey, God, you know what? Just cast everything out of me that's, that's, that's bad, 
Um, and, and, and then already I can see a conflict in that if you're starting already to cast things out of you, then obviously that's an omission that you're not like Jesus, hmm. you know, already. Yeah. Um, so, so do you just do it once and then you're, then you're good yeah. or do you do it and then it happens again and then you go, oh man, I'm, I'm not like Jesus. That's right. You know, now I appropriate, you know, the blood and things like that. And now I'm back on track. And then, and then after a while, it seems like that person would start getting this mindset of like, man, am I really making any progress? Right. You know, like how am I, am I really making better progress on these things? And, and, and then, or it seems like they might just start ignoring (laughs) certain areas because they just, they, they want to believe so badly that they are becoming more like Jesus. Hmm. And I think it really does go back to the the initial passage that I read. So once again, like this idea of freedom that Jesus is talking about, what does he mean when he says, if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed? What is the context of that? And how does that apply to what we're talking about? Well, the first thing he says is, he says, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And they said, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been in bondage to anyone. How can you say you will be made free? Jesus answered them, most assuredly, I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave to sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. So two statements that are really interesting when it comes to this freedom. What is the freedom that Jesus is offering? The first thing he says is that anyone who commits sin is a slave of it. Meaning if you've ever committed a sin, according to Jesus, you're a slave. Okay. However, when he says you will be freed, well, what, what, is, what is the difference between a sa- slave and someone who works? Right. So there are some people who work. Some people might even work harder than someone who's in slavery. No joke. Uh, Maybe they're putting in more hours. Maybe they're doing more than someone who's in slavery. I'd like to believe that when I was uh, in the military, when I was in Afghanistan, I like to believe I was working harder than a lot of slaves and my living conditions were worse than a lot of slaves. However, what's the distinction between me and a slave? I have autonomy, meaning I could choose to leave. Right. It's my choice. A slave can't say, hey, I want to leave. They're stuck, right? They, they cannot leave. They have no power or authority or autonomy in themselves to say no. So possibly what Jesus is saying is he's saying that once, you, once he sets you free, you gain the ability. You gain the access? the access to fight sin, right? Prior to being set free, you have no ability to leave, right? So prior to accepting Jesus as your Savior— you cannot be freed from sin ever, right? But now that you are, you have accepted Christ, you have the ability to fight. So merely the ability to fight sin is a result of someone who's been set free. And Paul, by the way, so some of you guys might be saying, well, you're kind of reading into that. That's not really what it says. Okay, Paul in Romans chapter six, he takes up this ideal that Jesus lays out here and he talks about presenting our members as slaves either to righteousness or to iniquity, right? So Paul is speaking here of the idea that the Christian has the freedom or the liberty to either present his members as being right members of slaves of righteousness or members of slaves of iniquity. But then someone, someone else would take that and say, okay, well, then he's saying that you can be a total slave of righteousness. Well, not so fast. You keep reading and you get to Romans 7 and Paul talks about how this is not something that he's done yet. It's something he's trying to do, right? Yeah. And then in Romans 12, he goes even a little deeper, and he talks about 
presenting his members as a living sacrifice to God, right? So this is, this is an idea of like, yeah, you can do it, but will it be done this side of heaven? Will you be a total slave of righteousness this side of heaven? No. Every day you now have the liberty to fight and to pursue this type of freedom in God, but you won't achieve it, right? You're not going to achieve it, and that's what these sections are getting at. That's the argument that he's making. He's pulling this from, Roman, uh, from John chapter 8. The second way that Jesus puts it is he says, and a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son does. What's the other, other distinction between a slave and a son? Paul also takes up this argument in Galatians chapter 4. And in Galatians chapter 4, he talks about the distinctions between the son of a slave woman and the son of a free woman. And he basically says, when we were under the law, he says we were slaves of God. We did not, we were not sons. Right? Meaning that a slave, their worth to the household is based on their work. Right, That's how a slave functions within a household. If a slave is not functioning correctly in a the household, they're cast out. Right, And that's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that you, you are slaves. You're going to be cast out. You're not sons. You don't abide in the house. Right, This is not your house. A slave can't go into their master's house and say, this is my house. No, it's where you work. It's not your house. A son can, though. Right? I could go in my dad's house and be like, yeah, this is my house. It belongs to my family. It belongs to my dad, and therefore it belongs to me. And Jesus is saying, this is the freedom that he's talking about. You're going to become a son. right? You're going to become a son. You're no longer a slave under the law. You're no longer, your worth before God has nothing to do with your work ethic, your ability to keep the law. Your value and your authority before God has everything to do with your adoption. Yeah, right. your identity, and we're, we're we we got to end our podcast here because I know Peter's got to get someplace. <laughs> but uh, the reason why this is important, just to people that are watching, is that you know theology matters, and and it matters in how we work with people. And when you when you have a theology that. Um, say, like the holiness theology, that you can be Jesus, basically. Hmm. That you can, you, you know, perfection is there. It can be appropriated through the bl- the blood of Jesus Christ or through the resurrection. Then then that is going to be communicated to your group. Right. And and then there's ramifications for that, that belief that we already talked about. Um, and so the way we define John chapter 8 in verse 36, if the Son therefore makes you free, you are free indeed. That is important because many people quote that passage and and it, it's kind of like they go, hey, I'm no longer drinking, I'm free indeed. And I always, you know, point out, well, what is there anything else you're not free from? Now, some people might say, well, hey, if you've been freed of drinking, then, you know, you can be free of this other thing, too, and you can be free of this other thing, too. And the answer to that is, yes, yeah, we believe we can, you know, but there is going to be a, there is a process within that that God has actually established within the church, uh, a confession, um, a accountability, um, a dependency on the body of Christ, because it's within the body of Christ, First Peter chapter 4 verse 10 says is the manifold grace of God at. So 
put it this way, God has set things up within the body of Christ so that we need to become dependent within on each other within the body of Christ. Because if you, if you thought that like total perfection was actually attainable, then you could just do it on your own. Right. You could just sit in your closet and just go, hey, I rebuke the devil in the name of Jesus. And man, I'm trusting, I'm appropriating the work of Jesus. That's it. And it's done. And the reason why it's not done is, is because God has established his church. And his church is there for a reason that someone is the toe, someone is the hand, someone is the arm. And we we are dependent on one another. Everybody within the body of Christ is there to help us in our sanctification process. Sanctification doesn't happen apart from the body of Christ. It is the body of Jesus Christ. Right. And and so that's another another kind of topic in itself. But. Needless to say, try to get people back into church. Mm. Try to get people, if you can, try to help people see the importance of being in fellowship. And think about what Bo's saying for one second. That why is it that when people sin, they leave church? Doesn't it come from this idea that the people in the body are people who are sinless? Right? So if I came into the church and I really believe that everybody in the body is sinful... They're all struggling, they're all a mess, and they all need the body in order to become greater and grow in Christ. Then if I was sinning, that's there's no better place to be than in the body. But if I believed that the body of Christ was free from sin and I sin, that makes me feel like I'm not a part of the body, right? My sin excludes me from fellowship, and it makes me feel like I have no place. Yeah. Right? Yeast, a little yeast leavens the lump. We're told that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. But just because you have yeast, that's it doesn't mean don't go to church. <laughs> you know, what it's saying is that, you know, be a part of the body of Christ because being a part of the body of Christ is going to be the uh, the way that we are able to work on the yeast that's in our life. Hmm. Um, you know, that's it's it's God's put it that way. So we're going to end that there. We're going to talk more about this, though. What is freedom in Christ? mean because this really is huge as far as helping other people get on the right track and uh, not get off on all these other ways um, within Christendom and the Christian culture so you guys take care man we are thankful for you guys following if you guys know anybody in the churches that you're at that have questions on sexuality in the Bible or things of that nature me and Peter usually do these podcasts on on Friday seems like that's when we're hitting it usually at, uh, right after we get done the gospel rescue mission so at around uh, 2.30 so we'll talk to you guys later take care bye bye check out runninglight.org to begin our two video series take flight and love or lust you can also send us questions on Twitter at Running Light or on our runninglight.org podcast page. Like us on Facebook at Running Light Ministries, Psalm 36.8. They are abundantly satisfied with the fullness of your house, and you give them drink from the river of your pleasures.